0: Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast episode number 192. Today's big Bible question, what does true repentance look like? So happy Tuesday friends, you survived another Monday in the midst of the worst year of our lifetimes, so let's take a moment and praise God for his faithfulness, his loving kindness endures forever. Today's Bible readings include Joshua chapter 9, Psalm 140 and 141, Matthew 17, and Jeremiah chapter 3, which is our focus passage, our first time to focus on a truth from the book of Jeremiah. Now, got to say, the Gibeonite deception of Joshua 9 is at least worth a mention. Very clever and funny people, these Gibeonites. They avoid utter destruction by being sly, you know, deceptive, but extremely clever. I probably shouldn't be, but I am really impressed by those guys, and I really wonder what became of them. Did they intermarry with the Jews? Did they die out? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if the first person that said, I admire your chutzpah, was talking about those crazy Gibeonites. That, however, is not our focus for today. Our The focus of the day is true repentance. True repentance is pretty important, like massively important for a Christian because the fact of the matter is fake or false repentance is utterly meaningless to God. And unlike Joshua with the Gibeonites, he will not be deceived by our cleverness or our acting or our outward displays of repentance and sorrow. So consider what God says to the nation of Judah in Jeremiah 3, 8 and 10, he says, Nevertheless, Israel's treacherous sister Judah was not afraid, but also went and prostituted herself. Indifferent to her prostitution, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite all of this, her treacherous sister Judah didn't return to me with all her heart, only in pretense. Now, for the record, God, as he often does prophetically, is speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about real prostitution, but talking about sin in terms of prostitution. Israel and Judah kept turning away from God and turning to idols made of stone and trees, which is what God is calling their prostitution. So Judah sinned heavily against God, and upon seeing the punishment brought upon the Israelite clans for their unfaithfulness, Judah tried to return to God in pretense. The people tried to pretend to be sorrowful about their sin and pretend to come to God rather than doing it wholeheartedly. They did it in pretense. Now, pretense is a fascinating word and it's a dangerous thing to be avoided by every Christian. Pretense is pretending, feigning, faking, or make-believe. A good definition is an inadequate or sincere attempt to attain a certain condition or quality there's way too much pretense in Christianity right now among those who claim Christ. Far too many people are acting, uh, and, and, and showing too much acting and not enough genuine sincerity. Now that may fool other people, but who cares? Pretence and pretending and fake repenting will never fool God. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 3 together and ponder what true repentance looks like, what it means. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him to marry another, can he ever return to her? What in such a land become totally defiled? But you, you've prostituted yourself with many partners. Can you return to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Look to the barren heights and see, where have you not been immoral? You sat waiting for them beside the highways like a nomad in the desert. You've defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. This is why the showers haven't come, why there has been no spring rain. You have the brazen look of a prostitute and refuse to be ashamed. Haven't you recently called to me my father? You were my friend in my youth. Will he bear a grudge forever? Will he be endlessly infuriated? This is what you've said but you've done the evil things you are capable of. In the days of King Josiah, the Lord asked me, Have you seen what unfaithful Israel has done? She has ascended every high hill and gone under every green tree to prostitute herself there. I thought after she's done all these things, she will return to me, but she didn't return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. I observed that it was because unfaithful Israel had committed adultery that I had sent her away and had given her a certificate of divorce. Nevertheless, her treacherous sister Judah was not afraid, but also went and prostituted Herself. Indifferent to her prostitution, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, only in pretense. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord announced to me, Unfaithful Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration. Return, you faithless children. This is the Lord's declaration, for I am your master. And I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. When you multiply and increase in the land, in those days, this is the Lord's declaration. No one will say again the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind, and no one will remember or miss it. Another one will not be made. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land I have given your ancestors to inherit. I thought, how long, how I long to make you my sons and give you a desirable land. The most beautiful inheritance of all nations— I thought you will call me my father and never turn away from me. However, as a woman may betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. A sound is heard on the barren heights, the children of Israel weeping and begging for mercy, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you faithless children, I will heal your unfaithfulness. Here we are coming to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely falsehood comes from the hills, commotion from the mountains, but the salvation of Israel is only in the Lord our God. From the time of your youth, the shameful one has consumed what our ancestors have worked for, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From the time of our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. So what is the opposite of pretense? Well, I guess the answer is genuineness, I suppose. Authenticity or something like that. But let me be very clear. This is not a Disney Channel, Disney Plus TV show or movie. Practically everything I've seen from Disney these days, and I enjoy some of it, but practically all their shows targeted at kids all promote the same ultimate moral message, which is just be yourself. Look, I appreciate genuineness. I appreciate when somebody is just themselves. But the fact of the matter is that message falls way short. Because if you and I just be ourselves, we are profoundly sinful. We're not called to merely be ourselves. Do you want the racist to continue being himself? Do you want the greedy person to continue being themselves? Do you want the thief to keep on thieving and the and the mean, horrible person on social media just to be themselves? No we're called to genuinely follow Jesus without acting. And when we sin, we don't excuse it as if we were living according to our nature, but we also don't pretend to be upset about it and say, I don't know, 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers so that God can forgive us whether we're genuinely sorrowful or not. Those kind of things are fake. Repentances of pretense rather than true pretense. So what does true repentance look like and why is it so important? Well, first and foremost, genuine God-pleasing repentance begins with genuine God-pleasing sorrow. There is no repentance without genuine grieving or sorrow over the wrong act that you've committed. So Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Did you catch that? Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Worldly grief produces death. Worldly sorrow, as I understand it, is a sorrow of acting and external displays of contrition rather than real and genuine inside sorrow. Jeremiah shows us what I believe are the two real and important components of repentance. Number one is acknowledging your sin or confessing. Jeremiah 3.13, where God says, only acknowledge your guilt. You've rebelled against the Lord your God. Well, we've got to acknowledge when we've sinned. And to be very clear, I'm not speaking of confessing your sin to a priest, but to a fellow believer uh, or a fellow Christian. Can it be a pastor or a priest? I suppose it can. But if you think they're the only ones who can, quote, hear your confession, you're turning away from what the Word says, which says, James 5.16, the Bible says, Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You don't have to do it with a priest or a pastor. Um, Do it with the body of Christ. So the first step in true repentance is acknowledging and confessing your sins, not trying to hide them or justify them, but genuinely owning up to them and saying with God that those sins were wrong and were displeasing to him. To confess something is very simply to agree with God about something, to say the same thing about something as him. Lord, I lied and you've commanded me not to lie. It's wrong. I've sinned against you. So when we do that, we're confessing. I did this thing. I agree with you that it's wrong and I did it and I'm guilty. I have sinned against you. That is confession. So step number two in that process is godly sorrow. Which may often include weeping, but you know not always. We don't want to be dogmatic about that. But in Jeremiah 3:21, it says, "A sound is heard on the barren heights; the children of Israel weeping and begging for mercy, for they've perverted their way; they've forgotten the Lord their God." Well, that kind of response to our sin, that godly sorrow we've been talking about, is spelled out even more clearly in James chapter 4, where we see that repentance and godly sorrow are not only the keys to returning to God, but also a profoundly important part of spiritual warfare and fighting against the enemy. James 4, 7-10 through 10 says, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So uh, does that mean God just wants us to be bumped out and sad all the time? No. But when we sin, the right response is weeping, mourning, not celebration and going on and living our life like we're unaffected by it. God looks for godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which brings salvation. So what is the foundation of true repentance is it fear of god or fear of punishment or something like that is it just a desire to be good and holy and do the right thing well actually says john piper the foundation is love piper says that was the startling discovery i made last january in order to cry over not having something you must really want to have it the more you want to have it the more you feel distressed over not having it this means that true contrition True repentance, godly sorrow in other words, must be preceded by falling in love with God. To truly weep at not having God's holiness, you must long for God's holiness. To truly weep over not possessing it, it must be attractive to you. So you see how strange this seems at first. God in his way of holiness must become your joy before you can weep over not having it. You must fall in love with a person before estrangement or being apart from that person really hurts. So hell is insufficient to produce tears of genuine repentance. For the tears to be real, they have to come from really missing God. Not just missing out on heaven, but missing out on God because our sin has broken that relationship. Peter saw in the miracle of Jesus, a treasure of hope and joy that was so wonderful, he was overwhelmed with how out of sync his life was with such a treasure. If this much power and this much goodness is there in Jesus for those who trust him, Then, oh, how different would be my life be, would my life be if I truly believed? How radical would my obedience be? What abandon would I feel in my living for such a Jesus as that? What freedom from petting grievances and from fleeting pleasures of sin would I enjoy? So the discovery I made, says Piper, was that true remorse and godly sorrow, contrition and repentance flow from falling in love with all that God is for us in Jesus. Until God is our treasure, we will not grieve over our falling short of being satisfied in him and living in a way that shows that satisfaction. So friends, what is God looking in for us when we sin against him? And the answer is an acknowledgement of the sin without trying to hide it or justify it and genuine, authentic, godly sorrow of it, over it. And when we walk in that, we will walk in true repentance and we will be washed. We will be cleaned. We will have restored relationship with God. Well, let's continue reading. Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. When all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai, those who were west of the Jordan in the hill country, in the Judean foothills, and all along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea towards Lebanon, the Hethites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they formed a united alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon, with a B, Gibeon, Heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted deceptively. They gathered provisions and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land, please, Please make a treaty with us. The men of Israel replied to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua asked them, Who are you and where do you come from? They replied to him, Your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two Amorite kings beyond the Jordan, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who is in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our land told us, Take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet them and say, We are your servants. Please make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we took it from our houses as food on the day we left to come to you. But now see, it's uh, dry and crumbly. And these wine-skins were-they were new when we filled them, but see, they're cracked. And these clothes and sandals of ours are worn out from the extremely long, Ah, <sighs> journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not seek the Lord's decision. So Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. Three da- days after making the treaty with them, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors living among them. So the Israelites sat out and reached the Gibeonite cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shaphira, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the whole community grumbled against the leaders, and all the leaders answered them, We've sworn an oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we can't touch them. This is how we'll treat them. We'll let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath we swore to them. They also said, Let them live. So the Gibeonites became woodcutters and water carriers for the whole community as the leaders had promised them. Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, Why did you deceive us by telling us you live far away from us when in fact you live among us? Therefore you are cursed and will always be slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. The Gibeonites answered him, It was clearly communicated to your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do to us whatever you think is right. So this is what Joshua did to them. He rescued them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. On that day, he made them woodcutters and water carriers, as they are today, for the community and for the Lord's altar at the place he would choose. Psalm chapter 140, verse 1, Rescue me, Lord, from evil men. Keep me safe from violent men who plant evil in their heart. They stir up wars all day long. They make their tongues as sharp as a snake's bite. Vipers' venom is under their lips, Salah. Protect me, Lord, from the power of the wicked. Keep me safe from violent men who plan to make me stumble. The proud hide a trap with ropes for me. They spread out a net along the path and set snares for me, Selah. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Listen, Lord, to my cry for help. Lord, my God, my strong Savior, savior you shield my head on the day of battle. Lord, do not grant the desires of the wicked. Do not let them achieve their goals. Otherwise, they will become proud, Selah. When those who surround me rise up, that may the trouble their lips cause overwhelm them. Let hot coals fall on them. Let them be thrown into the fire, into the abyss, never again to rise. Do not let a slanderer stay in the land. Let evil relentlessly hunt down a violent man. Know that the Lord upholds the just cause of the poor, justice for the needy. "'Surely the righteous will praise your name. "'The upright will live in your presence.'" Psalm 141, Lord, I call on you, hurry to help me. "'Listen to my voice when I call on you. "'May my prayer be set before you as incense. "'The raising of my hands is the evening offering. "'Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. "'Keep watch at the door of my lips. "'Do not let my heart turn to any evil thing "'or perform wicked acts with evil evildoers. Do not, "'Do not let me feast on their delicacies.' Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. When their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff, the people will listen to my words, for they are pleasing. As when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks, so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Do not let me die. Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snare of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When they reached the crowd, the man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, Jesus told them. For I tell you truly, if you have faith, the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Uh, yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon, from whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Uh, from strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fishhook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your miraculous provision, for your kindness and mercy. God, keep us safe. May the Lord keep you safe, friends. Good day and Godspeed.